copy of God's Word to the Gospel of Mark. The Gospel of Mark, we are continuing our sermon series through the Gospel of Mark, and we come this morning to verse 18 through 27. Uh, We have seen over the last few weeks, I've been calling the last few weeks, really a battle of authorities uh, between Christ and his authority and the authorities of those leaders in Israel. And this battle has taken place ever since Jesus Christ's cleansing of the temple back in chapter 11. And today we are going to see that continued battle of authority uh, now represented uh, represented by uh, the Sadducees. Uh, So with that introduction out of the way, let us give attention now to the reading of God's holy and inspired word. And Sadducees came to him, who say that there is no resurrection. And they asked him a question, saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife, but leaves no child, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. There were seven brothers. The first took a wife, and when he died, left no offspring. And the second took her and died, leaving no offspring. And the third likewise. And the seven left no offspring. Last of all, the woman also died. In the resurrection, when they rise again, whose wife will she be? For the seven had her as a wife. Jesus said to them, Is this not the reason you are wrong? Because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God? For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And as for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the passage about the bush, how God spoke to him, saying, I am the God of Abraham, and the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not God of the dead, but of the living. You are quite wrong. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord will stand forever. Would you bow your heads with me in a word of prayer? Our Father in heaven, we come to this, your living and breathing, infallible and inerrant word, which is able to cut your people to the quick. And we know, O Lord, that lest your spirit meet us now through the reading and preaching of it, it will be dead words and we will have dead hearts. Enliven our hearts by your Spirit. Soften our hearts. Give us hearts of flesh to receive this, your word, and change us from one degree of glory to another. Do this, we pray, for we ask it in the strong name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Today we see, as I've already mentioned in the introduction, the continued battle that Jesus is having with the authorities in Israel. Uh, We saw a couple weeks back his battle with the chief priests, scribes, and elders uh, when they came and questioned Jesus and his authority after he had cleansed the temple, essentially asking him whose authority does he have to cleanse the temple. Last week, we saw his battle with the Pharisees and Herodians uh, concerning taxes paid to Caesar. And today, a new Jewish sect comes onto the scene to do battle with Jesus. And this time, the Jewish group is the group of the Sadducees. Uh, Now, if we were to define the Sadducees really in one word or to label them, uh, we might call the Sadducees pragmatists. They were very much the practical religious group. Uh, The Sadducees... uh, 
didn't believe in angels, as Paul will tell us in the book of Acts. And according to the first century Jewish historian Josephus, uh, they did not believe that the soul was immortal. When the body dies, the soul dies with it. Uh, So they didn't believe in many of the sort of metaphysical characteristics of the Old Testament, Uh, some of the supernatural elements in the Old Testament. They didn't believe in angels, and they did not believe in the immortality of the soul. Uh, And what we learn here in our passage and elsewhere within Scripture is that they did not believe in the resurrection of the body. When the body dies, it's dead along with the soul. And what we see here is that they ultimately uh, denied what Jewish and Christian orthodoxy has really always held to. And that is when those that belong to God die, their soul goes to be with the Lord and awaits the day when the soul will be reunited with a new and glorified body. Now, that day where you have that reunion of glorified body with the immortal eternal soul that is already in heaven, that day is known, according to the Old Testament prophets, as the day of the Lord, the day when God will bring judgment on the world and he will make all things new. On that day was the expectation of that soul already in heaven being reunited with a new and glorified body. But for the Sadducees, when you're dead, you're dead, and your soul is dead as well. No hope of the soul going to heaven to be with the Lord, no hope of a new resurrected body. When you're dead, you're dead. We might call the Sadducees naturalist, very much of kind of like the naturalist modern thinkers of our own day. We live in a scientific age. The Sadducees would have fit right into this age. When you're dead, you're dead. You become worm food along with your soul. Really, when we look at the Sadducees, what we see is a religion that ultimately denied the power of God. And in fact, that is exactly how Jesus sums up the Sadducees here in this passage when he says, you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. And so what I want to do for the remainder of our time this morning is just highlight three forms of God's power that the Sadducees are ignorant of here in this passage. I want us to see the transformative power of God. I want us to see the scriptural power of God. And I want us to see the covenantal power of God. So first, the transformative power of God. In the Sadducees' hypothetical situation and story that he gives and that they give in verse 18 through 23, they are really alluding to Deuteronomy 25 and what is known as Leveret Law. Leveret Law gets its title from the Latin phrase levere, which simply means husband's brother. And the law is really quite simple. If a man's brother died and he left no offspring for his for his wife, it was that brother's responsibility to marry that dead man's uh, to marry that dead man's wife in order to produce offspring for the woman. Now the purpose was so that the dead brother's name would not die along with the brother, and his name would be perpetuated throughout the land of Israel. 
And it was also put in so that the woman would not be left with no prospects, having no husband and no children. So you had leveret law in Deuteronomy 25. If a man died, it was the responsibility of his brother to marry that dead man's wife if he died childless in order to carry on that man's name. But if this woman kept being passed on to brother after brother who were unable to produce offspring, and eventually the woman dies, whose wife will she be in heaven? Whose wife will she be in the resurrection of the dead? Now, it is obvious that this is less than a sincere question from the Sadducees. Really, what they are doing is they are being as absurd as possible in order to drive home the absurdity, at least in their minds, of the doctrine of the resurrection. Uh, It is more than likely that they have probably used the same argument with the Pharisees. Uh, The Pharisees and the Sadducees were enemies with each other, and part of the reason was because the Sadducees denied the resurrection of the dead. So you can imagine these Sadducees probably have this argument pretty well polished. They have probably already used it with the Pharisees. The Sadducees here are seeking to prove Jesus wrong by taking a biblical principle implemented by God in Deuteronomy 25 and taking it to its extreme form in order to show the impossibility of the resurrection of the dead. But what is it that the Sadducees are failing to recognize here about Leveret Law? What is it that they are failing to see that this law indicated? Let me ask you a question. What was necessary for Leveret Law to be implemented? Why was Leveret Law necessary? Well, it's because death is a reality in a fallen world sown in sin. The Leveret Law highlighted Israel's sinful and fallen condition. It highlighted the effects of the fall, inability to reproduce, separation, death. All are prerequisites for Deuteronomy 25 and Leveret Law. But what do you have here with the Sadducees? They are making this law the ideal, the standard rather than seeing this law pointing to fallen humanity's condition sown in sin, causing the Sadducees to long for a transformed world where there would no longer be death, separation, and infertility. Really, what we see here with the Sadducees is the same problem we saw with the Pharisees back in chapter 10 concerning divorce. You remember when we looked there in chapter 10, the Pharisees ran to Moses, this time in Deuteronomy 24, in order to prove that Moses gave a certificate of divorce, much like the Sadducees making that law the ideal, the standard. Yet you recall how Jesus responded then. It was because of your hardness of heart that God allowed for a certificate of divorce. With both divorce and leveret law, we find God accommodating himself to Israel's sinful and fallen condition. Certificates of divorce and leveret law should have caused both the Pharisee and the Sadducee to long for God and his power to transform a fallen world sown in sin. 
that was filled with hard-hearted divorces, infertility, and even death itself. I think it is why oftentimes we have trouble believing in the power of God and in miracles in our own day and age. We have trouble believing in the resurrection, much like these Sadducees had trouble in the first century. It's so hard for us to accept these things, these supernatural elements in Scripture, because we ultimately are too content with this world that we live in, which is fallen due to sin. We so often fail to accept God's word and his power because we see this world as the ideal, as the standard, because we really don't know our need for it. We don't seek out the transformative power of God. And so we fail to accept God's word and its power Religion really ultimately, at the end of the day, becomes a means of making this world a better place. And all we can hope for is progress, either through religious or secular means, in order to make this world better than when we first found it, to leave this world better than when we first found it. Because this world becomes the ideal. This world becomes the standard. But do you see here what we see from Jesus? It's that Jesus and God's vision is so much grander and greater than ours. His vision and his hope and his plans are so much greater than our visions and our hopes and our plans for our own lives. C.S. Lewis famously wrote, It would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us, like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. The Sadducees had a vision of God and a vision of his people that was tied to this fallen world. And due to that fact, they could not acknowledge the power of God that was to be at work in transforming this fallen world. Brothers and sisters, the fact of the matter is, if we are to lean heavily upon the power of God, we must first understand and acknowledge our need of it. If we are content with this world, we will never seek out the power of God, and chances are we will not believe in it. We must not be content with mud pies in a slum, but with a holiday at the sea that God brings through his transformative power that restores all things in and through his Son, Jesus Christ. So we see the transformative power of God. Second, the scriptural power of God. The scriptural power of God. Verse 24, uh, Jesus will say there, uh, Is this not the reason you are wrong? Because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. So here we see Jesus ties the power of God with God and his word. He ties the power of God with the scriptures. Knowledge of God's power comes in and through the Scripture. 
Now, Jesus' words here to the Pharisees, I think, really take on a two-part meaning. First, what he is saying here to these Sadducees is that they do not know all the Scriptures. It's important to note that the Sadducees, unlike the Pharisees, only accepted the first five books of the Bible, which we know as the Pentateuch, those books of the Bible that Moses had written. The rest of the Old Testament, they did not accept as God's revelation of himself. And so part of Christ's meaning here is that the Sadducees don't know God's power because they have failed to acknowledge God's word in its fullness. They have failed to acknowledge God's revelation of himself in its fullness since they only accepted the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible. But secondly, the Sadducees have also failed in interpreting God's word aright. As we will see in our next point, Jesus purposely quotes part of the Pentateuch. Why does he do that? He's going to the very scriptures that the Sadducees themselves accept in order to show that from those scriptures that they accept as God's inspired word, even in those scriptures, they have wrongly interpreted it. And so the Sadducees fail to know the power of God because they fail to accept all of God's word and because they fail in their interpretation of God's word. Because the Sadducees have failed in their acceptance and interpretation of God's word, they lack the necessary faith in God and his power to resurrect the dead in and through Jesus Christ. You know, there are many places we can look to to see the power of God. We can read biographies of Christian men and women and see how God's power has transformed their lives, and it can be inspirational. We can listen to testimonies of neighbors and friends and family members and see how, how God has brought them from darkness to light, and we can see the power of God on display there. We can look at God's creation. We can look at his nature. You know, ever since moving down here to the south, I've I've noticed you guys have some very powerful thunderstorms. Not, not any kind of thunderstorms I would get in the Midwest. And sometimes I look at these thunderstorms and I contemplate the sheer power of God. Or we can look at his creation just as a whole and the majestic wonder and beauty of it. And all of these are certainly proper places to see the display of God's power. But the power of God unto salvation, the power of God that resurrects the dead in and through Jesus Christ comes through Scripture and Scripture alone. It does not come through testimonies. It does not come through nature and beholding God's nature. It comes through God's Word and God's Word alone. And not just part of God's word, as the Sadducees made the mistake, but the whole counsel of God's word from Genesis to Revelation. And it is not enough that we merely give lip service to its divine origin. We must rightly interpret God's word. As Paul will say to Timothy, we must rightly divide the word of truth. Brothers and sisters, do you want the power of God to be working in your life? Do you want to know the power of God in and through Christ? Then know 
his word than know the scriptures. We should not whine and moan about God's power not being at work in our lives the whole time. The Bible is gathering dust on our shelves. Scripture and scripture alone is where we find the power of God working through Christ of the scriptures. St. Augustine, the famous church father, in his famous work, The Confessions, tells in that work, uh, writes about his conversion when he was at a courtyard and he was in anguish over his sin. He had been dabbling in sort of man-made philosophy and he was struggling and kind of had one foot in the mystical world and one foot in Christianity. And his shame and guilt of sin was hanging over his head. And while he was in this courtyard in anguish over his sin, he heard these children playing this children's game. And he heard one child continually repeating the words, pick up and read, pick up and read. Augustine quickly picked up his Bible and the power of God unto salvation worked in his life. Brothers and sisters, pick up and read your Bibles and know the power of God unto salvation. Know the power of God's resurrection life that is found in Christ and in Christ alone. So we see the transformative power of God. We see the scriptural power of God. Third and finally, we see the covenantal power of God. In verse 26, as I mentioned earlier, Jesus quotes from the Pentateuch uh, in order to prove the resurrection of the dead. Uh, This is done in order to prove from the very scriptures that the Sadducees accept that they themselves have misinterpreted the scriptures that they deem to come from God, to be inspired. And the place he quotes, he quotes from what we read earlier in our unison reading of scripture, Exodus 3, 6, where God first confronts Moses at the burning bush. And he says to him there, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And this passage causes Jesus to say, he is not God of the dead, but of the living. You are quite wrong. Now, I imagine when you first read this passage, you ask yourself the question, how in the world does this passage prove the resurrection of the dead? I imagine if somebody were to come up to you and ask you to prove from the scriptures the resurrection of the dead, this would not be a place you would go to. So how in the world does this passage, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, prove the resurrection of the dead? Well, I want to close this morning by giving two reasons. First, to say that God is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is for God to say that he is a God that makes covenant. He is a God that makes covenant. He has made covenant with Abraham back in chapter 15 of Genesis, uh, and in making his covenant with Abraham, he makes covenant with all of Abraham's posterity, all of Abraham's children. As Galatians 4, Paul will tell us the children of promise are wrapped up in the Abrahamic covenant and the promises that God delivers to Abraham in Genesis 15 and Genesis 17. And what is that promise? 
What is the promise of the Abrahamic covenant? Genesis 17, 7. I will establish my covenant between me and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and your offspring after you. In other words, God's everlasting covenant is an everlasting promise to Abraham and to his offspring that he will be their God. If there is no resurrection from the dead for Abraham and his posterity, then God's covenantal promise to Abraham is broken. In fact, the writer to Hebrews tells us that this is exactly how Abraham understood that covenant when it was first delivered to him. Listen to these words in Hebrews 11, verse 9, and then I'll read from verse 13. By faith he, that is Abraham, went to live in the land of promise as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with them of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city whose designer and builder was God. And then in verse 13, the writer sums it up like this. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. Do you see the difference between Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob's understanding of the covenantal promise and the Sadducees? The Sadducees have an earthly vision of the promises of God. They do not see themselves as exiles and strangers on the earth. The promises are tied to this fallen world. But Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, from the very start, had a heavenly vision of those promises, seeing themselves as strangers and exiles on this earth. They looked forward to resurrection life everlasting union and communion with God. By denying the power of God to resurrect the dead, the Sadducees are denying the covenant-making and covenant-keeping God. And they are ultimately, unwittingly, calling him a liar. So we see that this is a God of the covenant And his promise is that he will be in everlasting union and communion with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and all those wrapped up in the Abrahamic covenant, those who are the children of promise. But second, and finally, the second thing I want us to consider is that God does not define himself in connection to dead things. God does not define himself in connection to two dead things. God, in letting Moses know who is speaking with him, God gives a definition of himself to Moses. And connected to that definition is Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The ever-living, eternal God does not define himself in relation to dead things. That would be to contradict his very being. It would be something like someone coming up to you and asking you who you are, and I would say, I'm Mason, a dead, silent dog. Well, that would contradict my very being. I am a speaking, living human. 
God is not a God of the dead, silent dust. He is the ever-living, eternal God who is God of the living, the speaking, and those who continue on into eternity. In other words, when God comes down and enters into relationship with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob by means of covenant, he defines them. They do not define him. His eternity, his everlasting being overwhelms their finite nature. They get wrapped up in God. God does not get wrapped up in their temporal, finite, creaturely status. God defines Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Abraham and Isaac and Jacob do not define God. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, though due to sin, are destined for the ground. To dust we shall return. United to God by means of covenant, become like God. No longer destined for dust, but destined for resurrection life. Abraham and Isaac and Jacob are ever living because they are in covenantal union and communion with the ever-living, eternal God. Brothers and sisters, as Christians, when we put our faith in Christ and his shed blood of the new covenant, we are swallowed up by his resurrection life, and he defines us. We do not define him. So that when people come up to us and ask us who we are, we can say, I'm a Christian destined for heavenly glory with a new resurrected body because my covenantal head at this very moment reigns in heaven with a new resurrected and glorified body. God, by means of covenant, comes down in order that he might take us up and swallow us up in his life and in his being and unite us to Christ, who is the resurrection and the life. Brothers and sisters, put your faith and your trust in Jesus Christ this day and enter into covenantal union and communion with your ever-living and eternal God. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, how we praise you and thank you that you were not done with us when we fell in sin, when we rebelled against you and Adam and decided to follow the serpent rather than you, the ever-living God from whom all blessings flow. You would have been just, you would have been right in, in swallowing us up in your wrath. But no, God, in your mercy, And in your condescension through means of covenant, you have come down and you have entered relationship with us. And in these last days, you have entered into relationship with us in and through the God-man, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Father, I pray that you would knit our hearts, our minds, and all the faculties of our makeup to Christ so that we might enter into that eternal covenantal union and communion that has been won for us in the life, death, 
resurrection, and ascension of our Lord and Savior. Bless us, we pray. Shower your good gifts in Christ upon us, for we ask it in the strong name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Would you please stand?